Hey gang, welcome back. This episode sponsored by C90 Ocean Minerals, nature's most complete trace mineral salt and the one I feed to my herd. Support for this episode also provided by my awesome patrons on patreon.com forward slash Red Hills Rancher. New patrons, Ken, Jesse, and Trevor, thanks so much for your support. You can come join them and show your support on patreon.com forward slash Red Hills Rancher. If you want the inside scoop into what's going on with the podcast, drop by our Facebook group, The Ranching Reboot Paddock. If you want super duper insider access and be able to come hang out with me on Discord while I'm working in the office on the podcast, webinars, and other interesting things, you can find a link to join the Discord server in the Facebook group. This week on the podcast, Kevin DeLue comes back to continue our conversation from a few weeks ago. Today, we're going to unpack AI protocols and EPDs for dummies. Kevin talks about grazing in Brazil and the cattle business and what it's like down there. And we discuss the future of the seed stock business, genetics, and the cattle industry in general. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, hey, Kevin, welcome back. How are you today, hey, buddy? Good. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. Uh, nice, cool morning up here in the Red Hills. Just uh, got to enjoy a little bit of a rain shower this morning while I was out. Oh, good cows. deal. Not it, probably not even measurable, but it was nice yeah. to at least feel rain on my face. Yep. Yeah, we have a little bit of rain in the forecast coming up, so hopefully it, hopefully it, it shows up. You know, going into, you know, two years of this hard drought, I don't even... I, it's I don't even want to look at a forecast anymore because it doesn't ever say anything good. It's just yeah, exactly. hot and dry. Like crap. If I want a groundhog day, I just go walk, go rent the movie. Right. <laughs> Around here, I mean, uh, especially during the summer, they'll be they'll say, Well, they, we got a bunch of rain coming, bunch of rain coming. Well, then time shows up and there's no rain. And we get that a lot during the summer. At least in the winter, it's it seems like it's a little more uh on point. Whenever they say there's rain coming. Well, I, wouldn't it be nice to have that job? You could be wrong 95% of the time and you're still going to get paid. Like yep. <laughs> if we're wrong 95% of the time, we're probably, you and I are probably out of business. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. No, they, they're, they're set. Yeah. All right. Well, I wanted to have you back again. And um, because we didn't really talk about anything last time I had you on the show. Like, I mean, we talked we about kind of rambled. <laughs> Welcome to Ranching Reboot, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of what we do most of the time. Right. Um, so there, there's a bunch of other things I wanted to ask you about. I'm not even I'm not even really sure where to start on this. Um, I guess I guess we could kind of, you know, take at it with um kind of attack your not attack. That's the wrong word. Shit. I don't even know what I'm talking about. Let's talk about cows. Let's talk okay, about, let's, do it. <laughs> let's talk about like, I have some questions about AIing. like, okay, you know, and this will show my ignorance. So like, I kind of know the broad strokes, right. But I don't know, you know, some of the nuts and bolts details. And 
I want to talk about EPDs, like, and, and okay. maybe we can really dig down into EPDs and and discuss some of those. So, um, and I do have I do, I do have some other questions that you know folks have kind of sent in. Um, okay. One of the things I'd like to talk about, since you're in a registered business, and I'd, I'd like to talk about showring value or, or perceived value in a showring as compared to uh, customer value or producer cost. And, okay. and by breeding to the showring standards, are we doing our breeds any favors in the long term? Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. So how do you want to start off? Oh man, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, how about calving ease bulls? That's, that's an easy one. I know we've talked about that a little bit. Um, So I want to, I kind of operate under the theory that we've gone entirely too far with calving ease bulls and pretty much everything out there is quote a calving ease bull. And I'll, I'll also say this, you know, I, I expect to, I, I try to treat my heifers just like the cows I wish they were like, that's, that's okay. how I sum up yeah. my heifer development program. Okay. Like I have my ideal cow, one that, you know, sticks, rocks, dirt, salt, and scenery. Yeah. Maybe a little protein supplement in the winter. And that's how I want my cows to perform. So I've got to push my heifers to that standard because I don't feel like, you know, if I separate out my heifers and I feed them different, I feed them special to try to boost their fertility. I don't feel like I'm doing my cow herd any favors in the long run by, you know, by, by trying to quote, set those animals up for earlier success rather than letting them fail in the system and weeding them out. Yeah. No, yeah, no, I, I think you're definitely right on that. At least you can't push them too hard because they're the ones that are going to, they need to be able to perform for the rest of their their lives. Hopefully they're on the operation. And, okay, and I guess that kind of can tag into a discussion we had in the last day or so about bulls. Like It was uh, one of my fans actually texted me this morning, Lincoln. Hi, Lincoln. Um, and we were talking about bulls. And so... I've been, I operate under the philosophy that I want to buy my bulls from somebody as close to me on as similar of a program as I can find. Like, I don't want to go buy bulls that, you know, from about six months age, they've been pushed with a lot of creep feed and a lot of corn and a lot of high energy feed. Yeah. That's not what's going to make my program successful. What's going to make my program successful is a bull that can that basically I can put in the worst on the worst grass in the worst pasture and forget about, and he's going to look awesome. Like that's the bull, like that's the bull that's going to succeed in my program. Yep. And he's going to go out there and still breed all the cows on whatever, you know, whatever it is he, he has available, you know, to eat. And that's a big problem, especially in Angus. I see it a lot. The calves just get pushed way too hard. You go to see him. Well, you know, any fat, any fat animal looks good. And the, some of those bulls, they get pushed so hard. They they'll look like another bull in the same pen that might perform even better, but they're just so fat. You have no idea. And then you go take them out and put them out on the range or something and go to work and they just fall apart. And then, and then at that point, you don't know what kind of progeny you're going to be getting out of them. Is that, is that what you're going to be getting is just animals that fall apart or, or they have to perform on grain. And you know, that, that goes back to understanding 
your customer and understanding what value you as a business is providing to your customer and who your customer is. Like mm-hmm. we have completely different customer bases, right? Yeah. And you know, understanding what your customer wants, I think is, you know, it's important for me being in a cow calf wanting to look at, you know, maybe, maybe get in a C stock business later or selling cows or selling some of my heifers off later. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it's, it's a difficult thing to do. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, the, some of the record keepings, y'all, the, the registered folks oh, want, man. like, yeah, got to get the calf weight within 24 hours. Like, I can't have 150 acre pastures. Like <laughs> it's, it's not quite that easy. And, and they'll, you know, they'll have adjustments also that you can do for birth weight. Um, but even then, I think most people don't even realize how much their calves weigh a lot of times, you know, a calf that could be, you, you might think it's 80 pounds. It could be 90 pounds or it could be 70 pounds. It's just a matter of going out there and actually, you know, weighing them. And it was, Kind of tying back to what you were saying earlier about calving geese bulls. I think we too much focus on the calving geese over time. It it hurts the structure of the cow and whatever females you keep retaining out of that kind of genetics. At that point, that's when you're going to start having more problems with your calving geese maternal where the cows are going to have more problems with the stosha if they happen to have a head a real heavy calf or a big calf, they're going to probably have dystocia. You're going to have to pull the calf. And a lot of times that coincides with generations of calving geese that are backed up in the pedigree. And, ju- you know, just because an animal has a, a real high calving geese, real low birth weight, it just, it doesn't mean that the animal is going to end up performing the exact same in the pasture. They're going to, they need to have a calving geese bull in order to have a calf almost. And it, I don't, that almost seems like we've taken things too far. Like when we, when we have these really big 1200 pound cows or, you know, mm-hmm. the quote thousand pound cow that nobody's ever actually put on a scale. Like if a 1200 pound cow can't have, you know, a 70, 80 pound calf, mm-hmm. why do our cows weigh 1200 pounds? I mean, I don't know what any mind weigh. I'll be, I'll be straight up honest. And I suck yeah. at estimating weight by eyeballing. But, you know, some of my little Coriana cows have calf that's not a whole lot bigger than a jackrabbit. And six months later, he's only standing about six inches shorter than she is. You know, and there's certain genetics also that it doesn't. I don't I don't think that can apply to. I, I, I don't know exactly your cattle, but I'd imagine they couldn't probably handle a super heavy birth weight Angus or Charlotte kind of bull. And, or let's say like they come out with 100 pound calf they're probably gonna have a little bit more harder trouble trying to have them you know coriani cows at least is what i'm imagining well um if i i mean i I pay attention to steve campbell and he talks about the slope between hooks and pins Mm -hmm. the hook bones and the pin bones and i see i see the more attractive slope like the 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 pelvis rotation i see that more in the corrientes and longhorns than i see that in the continentals like i you see the continentals especially the angus that pelvis is is rotated up and there's a steeper slope from the hooks to pins that pelvis is rotated forward which kind of constricts that birth canal opening 
Yeah. And uh, even the Brahmas will have that. Uh, they prefer kind of a, a lot more slope, even than Angus. Sometimes, sometimes Angus, they just they'll end up getting that tail head that just sticks straight up sometimes. Yep. And you can't tell if that if it's an animal sitting there being flushed all the time or if that's just genetics and that's, you know, the way they look. And a lot of times I think that does come from the show ring visual appraisal that people like to breed in. Whenever you're showing cattle, you'll loin them with the show stick where you'll just get the show stick and, you know, stick on their back. So that way they're, you know, nice and pretty. And Okay, so for the people that have never showed cattle or been around that, what the what the hell is a show stick? <laughs> I, well, it's you know it's a stick that on the end has a I don't even know what I'm going to call it a poker on the end and it has a hook, kind of like an L, okay. and then you'll just use that to set up the feet, and also you can scratch them on their belly and on their brisket to keep them calm. Okay, so it's it's the stick y'all are carrying around that you know mm-hmm. just get them get them exactly the right spot and keep them calm when you when you're in a show. Okay. Yeah, yeah exactly that was probably that. the dumbest question asked this week <laughs> on the podcast. <laughs> Never a dumb question. <laughs> okay, so we're talking about show ring cattle. And I guess that's a good segue into um, what I mentioned earlier about show ring value. And mm-hmm. so I'll shoot off my mouth and offer my my opinion for what it's worth first. I kind of feel like what they're looking for in a show ring has almost no correlation to pasture performance there's a lot of visuals i think they look at in a show ring that that if we're if we're trying to drive that metric are maybe going to end up hurting our animal performance in a natural environment and you know i I get there's pressure competition totally get it you know and you want your animal to look the best there is i would prefer to go to a cattle show where they were all pulled straight out of the pasture the day before and hauled to the show ring and maybe given a bath. Like yeah, when you're spending six hours blow drying and putting blue shampoo in your cow and it's on a special diet that you hand feed to it four times a day to get that perfect show animal, you're going to get paid a lot of money for. Is it good business? Yes. Are you doing anybody any favors out in the real world? I don't think so. It's a beauty pageant. For me, that's what I think it is. On, I think showing is really, really helpful and good for the junior programs. And then once out of the junior programs, I don't, I, 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 I could, some breeds, it works, but there's too many that breed for the show ring instead of breeding for the pasture. And then they go to the show ring. Um, there's a gentleman that raises beef masters and he'll take animals to the show ring. If you know, he'll pull them from the patch room and think, well, she's really pretty. That's kind of my ideal kind of cow. I want to take her to the show ring and, you know, promote her. And it, I think doing like that is fine because he was breeding for the pasture. He was breeding for performance, but then you get people that that's all they do. All they do is the show ring. That's all they breed for. So what are they doing? They're breeding for a judge. They're breeding for one guy's opinion and to hopefully make bank on that. And I think it takes a lot away from the juniors in when there's parents that can buy their champions. They can buy the champions for the kids. They they have $100,000 to spend. 
okay, go buy that. Go win all the scholarships that the other kids who need the scholarship money, and they're not going to get it probably because they their parents didn't have as much money as the other ones that could buy the champion. And then at that point, they say, well, well, it's a good learning experience for the juniors. Well, then what is that junior learning if mommy and daddy can go and buy all the champions for them and then also help feed and then pay for the trailer, pay for all the hauling, pay for the hotel? I don't see much unless that's all you do and you sell really high quality show cattle. I, I don't see where the return on investment is anymore, considering the cost of feed, how much you have to feed them gas you know everything's gone up it's yeah real that's a really high input field in in the show in cattle that's that's why i've never been in it <laughs> yeah. i'm not i'm not a high input guy and so the young man that uh has helped me the last two summers great great kid named keaton whisk he's uh doing the uh he's going for a degree at range management at Kansas State University. Really, really super proud of this kid. Anyway, um, he started with me um, not long after I started the podcast, in fact. And we spent a lot of time that winter and spring driving around looking at cows. Now, Keaton has a background in showing. Mostly he would show goats because goats are cheap and you know cows mm -hmm. are not. And it's requires a lot less infrastructure to keep a goat and raise a show goat than it does show cow. So that's why he was in show goats. Um, but he's also in FFA and, you know, he did some livestock judging and we, you know, we talked a lot about the difference between the show ring and, and how my cattle would do, like if I just took them from the pasture to the show ring and what the judges would be looking for. And again, my, my ex incredibly limited experience, it seems like the judges want they want the steers to look like heifers and they want the heifers to look like steers and they want everything to look square. Pretty much. And, and it, that just seems like it's completely backwards. You know, you look in nature, okay? You you look at human boys and girls. We're different critters. Okay. Mm -hmm. You look at you look at chimpanzees, they're different critters. You look at hippopotamus, males and females, they're totally different critters. I mean, the males have a bot, males have a phenotype, and the females have a phenotype. And when we have these judges that are looking for square cattle, you know, what's the hormone balance in that cat in that animal to make it look like that? I mean, I want my bulls to look like they're walking uphill on level ground. You know, big shoulders, big neck, slim waist, good butt. I want my cows to look backwards. You know, they need to look like they're going downhill on level ground. Good neck, not too heavy in the shoulders, big guts, and a big butt. Yeah. You know, they need to look like girls. Yeah. They need to have their feminine characteristics and it plays back into their fertility. Also, you get, you know, the females that are just too short neck, too short bodied. They look way too much like a bull. Well, that's what they're going to produce as. And it's not very well. <laughs> if, you know, if you have a cow that's just not feminine at all, she doesn't have the, the characteristics to really have longevity in the herd. And likewise, I think the same should be true for bulls. If he's, you know, yeah. not a really masculine looking bull and not really expressing, you know, his, his inner maleness. Mm-hmm. 
you know, that animal's going to be going to be subpar and not perform near as well in a pasture, I think. And there's a lot of bulls now that I see that are really EPD oriented and they just, they don't look like bulls. They look like they should be steers and that's what they should have been, but they're helping trait was, uh, you know, the computer generated EPDs that they have. And that that's what saved them. But no, then they go and get collected now because of it. And it just keeps propagating uh, bad traits. That's a good segue to tell me how you really feel about EPDs. They're helpful. They're a tool. And I, you know, I use them still. But if there, there are certain EPDs, I won't, I don't want to go too extreme on, whether too extreme low or too extreme high, just to save myself for my market still. And also because there's some truth to them, as well as genomics, which with Angus, it really doesn't matter. Up and once you have the genomics enhanced into the EPDs. Okay, what what are genomics for the five year olds? Like in the conversation, I'm not going to be the best at explaining <laughs> this. It's it's taking the DNA on them and then sending it to Zoetis or to the Angus Association and they'll it what it does is it provides a little bit of accuracy to the EPDs so on the EPDs you know you'll have the trait which let's say birth weight you have birth weight and then you'll have the EPD number itself then you'll have the percentile rank which would be you know of all the animals in the it's like class ranking in in your high school you know if you're the top one percent in your class you're first or second smartest well same same goes for the epds on the percentile rank and then you'll have accuracy which would be you know 50 percent accuracy 75 percent accuracy however so that would be like they'd say we're 50 percent sure that this these genetics will you know marble 90 percent prime yeah something like uh, that yeah that's yeah pretty like a 50 percent accuracy kind of like weather when the weatherman <laughs> says there's a 50 percent chance of rain on this day well there's a 50 percent chance yeah. it won't <laughs> yeah exactly and they'll usually start off with five percent just as like baseline that means there's no accuracy at all and the genomics will kind of bump it up sometimes some of the traits will bump up to like 10 you know 0.1 which would be like 10 percent 20 percent so on and so forth and there's a lot of animals that i notice in my herd once i get the genomics back i'll look at the animals see how they're performing and, and it to me it coincides i can definitely see why this one has such a higher weaning weight compared to these others and then there's some that they're just dinks they they're they're ugly and they might have really good epds well i'm like well the epds aren't right on this animal so i'm not going to breed this animal with that in mind or is that one of those things that, you know, it's just a genetic outlier, just, you know, just bad roll of the dice that day and just didn't get the right combination of genes. Turn on. And I don't know if I explained it like this in the, in the previous podcast, the way I like to explain it is like, you, you want to go buy a box or a tool chest, whatever, to store all your stuff in. And you have a few different brands you can pick from. Well, one of the brands is from a guy. He's been making these toolboxes his entire life. He makes it by hand. He makes with all the different tools that he needs. He makes it a, 
according to your specifications. He makes them custom, does it really well, and he has a really good product. Then you got another guy. He just went and he, well, his product is made from a uh, 3D printer. The guy has enough money. He went out, bought the 3D printer, and now he can just make the exact same copy over and over and over again. That's the only tool he uses. And personally, I'd want the tool chest, the toolbox from the guy who takes his time, uses every tool at his disposal to make a good box compared to the other guy that's just like an EPD breeder is just breeding on EPDs. Just that one tool, just keep pushing them out, pushing them out, regardless of how good the feet are, how good the phenotype is. Have you priced a handcrafted wooden toolbox? It's probably a lot more expensive. Than that. <laughs> they are. High. That's why they go the other route. Yeah, <laughs> they are high. And I, I appreciate that analogy. I appreciate that analogy. And I think it kind of, I can kind of see that as applying to, you know, the production side of agriculture and the, the emerging regenerative slash grass fed side. Yeah. Cause it's like, you know, you could say the EPDs are like a hammer. Well, I'm, I don't need a hammer every single time, but maybe this one animal, the hammers worked really well. And, you know, I can utilize that out of that animal, but. Okay. EPD stands for expected progeny difference. Correct. Yes. Now, I'm also going to say that when I get a bulk catalog, it generally goes right in the trash unless it's a unless it's a feral cattle company. Those I actually <laughs> look at because, you know, the pictures yeah. are bigger, the dated blocks bigger, and I don't have to put on my reading glasses to read, you know, six point font and try to decode a bunch of damn numbers. So. Other than other than, you know, it is expected progeny difference. The hell does that even mean and how do they figure it? So I'll tell you what, I got a catalog right here, McKellar Angus, and I this is a really good operation that I use all the time. They're actually going to be having a sale coming up in October. So when you look at the EPDs, the progeny difference is saying, well, if a bull is, let's say, a plus one on his birth weight, and then you have another bull that is a plus two. What it's saying is, on average, the plus two bull will add two more pounds on average to the birth weight of his calves compared to, uh, well, I said one, but a bull that is a plus zero or a zero on his birth weight. Okay. So the other bull on average is going to throw two pounds heavier on his calves than the other bull. Well, that doesn't mean that bull is going to be throwing 80 pound calves and this one's going to be throwing 60 pound calves. You don't really know. Cause it's also dependent on the cow, right? What mainly it's going to be dependent on the cow. So and, if you have, go and ahead. that can be dependent on like, even if it's a donor cow. So like, if you're doing a, like a recip and a donor, that can be even weirder. Right. I, I, I guess I can think get back so. into that later. I, I, I'm not very knowledgeable on that. I know that you can have birth weight differences from embryo transfer. Uh, I think that's just something to do with the hormones maybe in the re recipient cow as well. But yeah, I, I don't know a whole lot on that. Yeah. Didn't mean to get you off track there. You're good. <laughs> <laughs> so what was I saying? Um, We're yeah, talking so, about birth weight EPDs. And, and some of my bulls I use, my herd sire and then the son I retain out of him are over a plus six on their birth weight. So what it's saying is on average, their calves are going to weigh 
about six pounds heavier on average than compared to other sires. Well, you'll notice that in their progeny, their progeny are going to be in the 80 to 90 pound range, typically. When some bulls are going to be lower, it might be in the 70 to 80 pound range. Excuse me. Okay. And another thing that people forget is that those EPDs can also compare to other breeds. So a plus six Angus birth weight can be correlated to, if I remember right, a, almost a negative two Charlet birth weight. Are there good? Okay. So EPDs are, are a good tool for comparing within a breed. Correct. But, but when you're trying to compare Angus EPDs with say Charlet EPDs, there's conversion charts or is it? Yeah. Or is it just something that's like, you're really going to take with a lot of grain of salt? probably need to take it with a grain of salt there's because i think another important thing to factor in is also how many progeny going back in the pedigree have data turned in on certain epd traits and like especially compared to other breeds because in the brahmas i don't i don't even care about the epds because the most most bulls will have will be less than 100 progeny and in the angus you know you'll have normally over a hundred progeny thousand progeny ten thousand and that's normal to see so yeah, i don't think a hundred calf set is really enough to get that's not a big enough data set yeah especially when you have out of bulls that have semen that is really expensive and you're only flushing to cows so then the majority of your calves are going to be out of one cow from a certain bull sometimes not where AI to the entire herd and then you have a hundred different cows, hundred different calves and all out of the same bowl. Then you can get a good idea of what, uh, what kind of data you're going to be getting in from that bowl later on. So how do they figure up EPDs? That I don't know. I'm going to be <laughs> honest. I don't know. I, I think there's some of them that are, um, Oh, what's the term? privately held information to the associations just so it doesn't get out to other associations to copy them uh there it, for for instance there's a dollar there's a value an index value in the epds and the angus called dollar maternal and that information is privately the formula that goes into that dollar value is privately held information so you know all the traits that go into the formula but you don't know what the formula is, actually. The one I really want to know about is the dollar's energy. Mm-hmm. So th that should be the way I understand what, what they're telling us about the dollar energy EPD is that's going to be a measure of how that animal is going to perform on grass, how efficient of a converter she's going to be. That's is that right? That's typically, I, I tell you what, I'll pull up the definition just so we know for sure. But that's the way I see it. Typically, those grass efficient genetics are going to be um, higher dollar energy. And you'll notice that the really high performing bulls, really top 1% birth weight or uh, blah, blah, weaning weight, yearling weight, super high performing bulls like that are going to be very low on their dollar energy. 
because they need a lot of power to put on those pounds, a lot of high energy to put on those pounds. They need a lot of food. Let's see, EPD and value definitions. And I suppose if you're living next door to an ethanol plant, you have unlimited access to wet beet pulp and spent distiller's grains for basically nothing. I mean, $20 a ton is like an absurdly ridiculous price for that kind of cow feed. Yeah, build a feedlot, have some cows. Don't care about your dollar energy, but when when all you have is grass and native range you know a measure like dollar energy to me should be everything but i really question the validity of of that dollar energy number because i have no idea how it's calculated i have no idea if it has any bearing in the real world other than the angus association saying yeah, yeah. you need you need a high dollar energy epd in your cows okay found- angus association tell me what it is tell me how you figure it out I found the definition here. It, it says expressed in dollar savings per cow per year assesses differences in cow energy requirements as an expected dollar savings difference in daughters of sires. A larger value is more favorable when comparing two animals, more dollars saved on feed energy expenses. Components for the computing the cow dollar energy savings difference include lactation energy requirements and energy costs associated with differences in mature cow size. So animals that are going to be more grass efficient, have a higher dollar energy, they're going to be smaller mature frame cows. They're going to be cows that don't milk as heavy because the heavier milking a cow is, typically they're going to need a, yeah, it, more it, energy requirements. Takes power to make milk. Mm-hmm. But you know, and and that's the cost that it comes with with the high weaning weights, the high yearling weights. Excuse me, I'm about to burp some. And yeah, and that's I think that is an important EPD value that you can look at, as well as DMI, which is dry matter intake on okay. those cattle. You'll typically see the higher dollar energy kind of cattle. You'll typically see a lower dry matter intake which is important you know you want less intake to put pounds on and then there's another epd called residual average daily gain which you you would want higher obviously higher average daily gain and a lower dry matter intake so you know less feed more gain and that's those are two epds i'm trying to keep at a good balance with within my herd, I've been able to have a good start with that already. Is it something that I noticed very well in my cattle? Not really, but I think it's at least a starting point for where I can begin to decrease my mature size on my cows and at least have that EPD backing up that I can hopefully maintain that kind of efficiency with what I have so far, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Did we make our cows too big? I think so. There's a lot of cows that people just love to show off how good a donors they are and stuff, how fat they are. But it's tough for me to say because there's a gentleman out in West Oklahoma. We talk a lot and he, he prefers larger frame cattle on his, on his range. He says that the larger frame cattle just do better. And I think I want to say that he sells like at the sale barn and Typically, they they don't want cattle that are already that already look finished, right? You know, like feedlots, they're not going to go they're not going to go and buy 
calves that look like they're already finished. And by the time they're done finishing them, they're, they're so overtly fat. They want calves that are going to at least grow into themselves still while they are being fed out. And a lot of times the, the, the more grainy fish and kind of cow are going to be larger framed is what I typically see. And, but when you go and see uh, an operation that I'm utilizing their genetics, uh, Power Plus Cattle or Duff Cattle Company in Oklahoma, they use a lot of the OCC genetics, which is it, that Oldie? Is, yeah. yeah. Okay. You said, uh, I'm going to put that in a show notes. You said Power Plus? Power Plus Cattle, yes. And what was the name on that? Uh, Duff Cattle Company. It's the same thing, but they have their own feedlot actually where they feed out these, uh, these genetics. And I mean, they, they reach prime and choice, just like all the rest. They're going to be smaller frame, probably smaller carcass weights, but I mean, I, I can, I can imagine those cattle would probably, I, I'd, I'd imagine they would finish out quicker. You may not be getting the same kind of carcass weight that, I, I want to say that we've been trained to to want because of the pa- you know because of feedlots they want a certain size carcass weight they want a certain size to be able to get what they need from the packers and stuff. I, you know, we're talking about like the, the carcass size that the packers and the feedlots want, and this you know it circles back to understanding your customer base. You know, and like I said before, if y'all out there listening to this, and you know you have a feedlot, fine. That's fine. Like I, I'm not gonna come. I'm not gonna come to your door and yell at you for having a feedlot and, and like talk shit on your waste management procedures. Okay, I'm not that guy. I'm just gonna keep asking you the questions. Like, are you sure this is what we should be doing? You know, is this mm-hmm. an ecologically sound process? So, you know, we've the cow size is an interesting discussion because you know you have. A, on one hand, you'll have like North American Meat Institute, you know, some breed associations saying, oh, yeah, we got to have these bigger cows. We got to have more pounds, more pounds, more pounds. But at the end of the day, it's it's not how many pounds you take to the sale barn. It's what it costs you to raise those pounds. It's how efficient you were at raising those pounds. And, you know, I like my Coriana cattle. Yeah, my cows are like my little cows are 650. I've got a 10 year old cow that's 650 pounds and she's given me two calves already. Like what's wrong with my little 650 pound cows? Like I got another one that's not a whole lot heavier and her calf from this spring is only about three inches shorter than she is. It's kind of ridiculous to see this calf, this, you know, big steer calf nursing off this little tiny 650 pound cow. It's like, that's a little weird, but it works. Mm-hmm. And if I can, if I can have a 600 pound cow that's weaning a 400 pound calf, I think that's a win. Like yeah. I would much rather wean a, a 400 pound calf off a 600 pound cow than a 600 pound calf off a thousand pound cow. Yeah, definitely. And, and when it comes right down to it, the cows are what eat the grass. I mean, mm-hmm. what that, what that calf is going to eat in its first year of life you know, daily dry matter intake is, is not much compared to the cow. Yeah. So if we're just looking at trying to raise as many pounds of beef per acre as we can pounds of protein per acre, it makes sense to have smaller cows, more hooves on the ground means more herd effect. And it means more calves. 
yeah, I'm going to show up at the barn with 400 pound calves. They're still going to sell for two bucks. Yeah. Yeah. Cause they yeah. still have the room that to grow into and yeah, yeah, exactly. They'll sell for that. And, and the guy down the road is going to show up at the barn with 650 and 700s and wonder why he only got a buck and a half buck 60 for him. And how much, how much more money did he spend on his cows maintaining them than you did? And in the long run, you're going to be ending up making more profit. Because I have more head and I'm bringing mm-hmm. in more pounds with less feed cost and less depreciation. Yeah. Two, big, two biggest costs around your ranch, cow depreciation and fed feed costs. Like, and if you can get those two under control, you're probably going to do okay. Like I cover depreciation on the front end by buying depreciated out cows that nobody else wants. So yep. they're already depreciated out and they don't need a whole lot of feed. So that helps me solve the fed feed costs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And right so, now, oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, no. I, I, yeah. I was done. Yeah. Right now, I'm trying to bring down my mature my mature size on my cows because I had a cow run through the chute the other day. Um, what did we we were we were vaccinating, and we put her on the scale, and she weighed seventeen fifty, and she didn't look seventeen fifty. She was pregnant, also, she was pregnant, but she weighed seventeen fifty, and she's the same. Because that that's that's the one thing about when we talk about mature size or mature weight. There's some cows, Angus cows, that they're hot, they're not tall, they're not big framed, but they're heavy, they're thick, they're wide. And I'll send you a picture of this cow. She's beautiful. She's exactly the way that you described, but she's 1,700 pounds when she had a calf in her. And I don't mind bringing down that weight just a little more. because she. Do you know how many Corrientes up. I could run? for that one 1700 pound yeah, cow. Exactly. I could probably run four cows. Yeah. For what and she so, eats. And luckily she's the kind that I don't have to, I don't have to supplement, you, you know, typically she, she goes out to the pasture regards to the pasture. She keeps her weight. She keeps herself. So now with her, I'm going to breed her to a smaller, a smaller frame kind of bull to hopefully bring that down. Like you want to but, keep her, you want to keep her phenotype, just shrink it a little bit. Yes. And cause I have other cows that that'll weigh about the same, but they're probably two, three inches taller than her. And for me, that's too much. I'd rather have the 1700 pound cow. That's smaller frame than the 1700 pound cow. That's taller frame. Cause that's the one that that's going to probably need more milk. It's kind of, I, that's not the kind of, uh, Approach well, on one then. shorter cow at the same weight is going to have more meat on the bone yeah and it should have it like logic says it should have more a better meat to bone ratio yeah yeah and one thing the brahma breed does this especially but they focus so much on bone especially in the show ring because there's there's really focused on the show ring and bone is a huge the bigger the bone the better it usually seems but the problem with that is I feel like you're taking away your longevity and your cow herd in, at the end. You're going to start getting more joint problems. You get foot problems, weak pastures, because there's so much weight that they're packing onto these animals. And just over time, you know, their pastures just they're, their feet collapse. Yeah. And they end up getting bad feet. And there is there is a, a post on Facebook. A guy was showing his embryos that he has out of this cow. 
I looked at a cow and he he was saying, well, she has one of the biggest bone cows you'll ever find, Rama cow. And I go look at her at her production. She's only raised one calf and she's 11 years old. <laughs> like... He only has four other embryo calves. And I'm thinking, guys, what are we doing? This isn't. Guys like that aren't doing the industry any favors. They're, they're not. And he, there was another cow that he that he'd posted. Uh, I have embryos out of this cow. She's a double bred granddaughter out of this bull. She is polled. She's a black Brahma. And I went and looked her up and she's five years old. Never had a calf. Picture of her. She's ugly. Never had a calf. But those three things, you know, she's polled. She's black and she's double bred granddaughter, double bred granddaughter out of this bull. Well, that means she's good. no. She needs to go to the sale barn. She needs to be out of here. We don't need that genetics continuing. She needs to be in a box somewhere at freezer <laughs> camp. <laughs> yep, exactly. I think there's, I feel like there's a lot of cows that guys are, um, that are like that. And is it somebody that's like, well, obviously they have a day job because there's no way that there's no way any, anybody in the cattle business that's trying to actually make money off of cows would have a five-year-old cow that has only had one calf. Like the only way that makes sense is there's massive subsidy or off-farm job yeah. keeping that keeping that enterprise alive. Yeah, and uh, well, he's he's hired by the owner of the ranch, and they had sold a company for like three hundred million. So he just had a bunch of fu money to yeah. throw out. And, and you can, you can say fuck you money. That's fine. We, if we can I cuss on this podcast, if I had. If I won the lottery, if I had that kind of money, I would luckily I've already started in this from like a like a, a, a poor man's approach. So if I had that kind of money, I'd I feel like I'd be on top of the game above everyone at that point. Because I could utilize it so well, I could make I, I saw that TikTok and I got to thinking uh, yeah, like, what that. would I do with a hundred million dollars? <laughs> and the first thing I thought of is idiot. You need to hire a lawyer if somebody gives you a hundred million dollars and an yeah, accountant exactly. and not touch it and let them tell you how to spend it because you'll just, you know, I'll just yeah. go to Vegas and do hookers and blow or something. With the way that I said <laughs> it, I that hundred million's gone already. <laughs> yeah. Like by every ranch that touches mine. Yep. Okay, we're done. <laughs> yep, that's it. We're done. <laughs> yeah. There's a good quote, like uh I can't remember where I heard it, but there was somebody said, Well, I don't want to own everybody's ranch i don't need to own all the land in the world i just want to own everything that touches my ranch exactly like yeah well there's a point where that has to stop there buddy <laughs> and you know like i it's fun to dream like that and stuff but you never know yeah if you, it, it's a good way to at least keep you on your toes to be able to see where you could push your 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 operation in a direction where you can have the best kind of outcome with the the money that you do have at least but thinking about having a hundred million dollars is way too much money for me like mm -hmm. i've got to think about like maybe having five like okay i can think about how i could get rid of five and leverage that for the rest of my life you know yeah build a business that i can that'll provide me income for the rest of my life i can do that with five a hundred million dollars would probably just turn me into a total idiot yeah probably <laughs> I wouldn't build a feedlot. <laughs> no, no, that's out of the question. Uh, I'd, I'd probably buy some extra land and I'd probably 
it definitely, definitely double down on fencing and water development. It, mm-hmm. I hate to say this, but it'd probably be a lot more closer to what Alejandro Carrillo is doing down in Chihuahua Desert, Mexico. You you don't have yeah. any idea, idea what I'm talking about down there? No, no. I think I've heard something, but. I'd say how many acres he's running down there, but I'll get it wrong. Uh, they spent, so like Chihuahua Desert in Mexico, 12 to 14 inches of rain a year. Yeah. Like farther south than you and I. So it's definitely hotter and drier, probably higher country, you know, pretty poor grass production. Like it, it's, and it's a lot of, it's a lot of land, 20, some 25,000 acres, I think off the top of my head without, you know, yeah. I don't have Jamie around to look anything up or, you know, <laughs> right. or, or a Dave, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, I, I got to do all this. That's all we need. Yeah. Got to do all this off the cuff. Well, maybe one of these days we'll get some folks in discord that can look stuff up for us. Um, but no, what he did is they went in and did super intensive water development. Mm-hmm. Like miles and miles of pipe like makes makes my water systems we talked about uh on last week makes them seem like like shit that wouldn't even get out of their yard okay like miles and miles and miles and hundreds of tanks and oh gosh yeah and what they did is they fenced the whole thing with electric fence and they fenced one day paddocks they have permanent one day paddocks on that ranch and they go move cows every day on a like a 20 25,000 acre ranch and we're not talking like like a two acre paddock here like i think we're talking like 10 and 20 acre paddocks okay that are permanently yeah. fenced with electric fence and you know hundreds or you know up in the thousands ahead of cattle in one herd getting moved every day in permanent in permanent just electric fence rotational paddock. grazing just uh i mean rotation implies that there's a system that you know it's that, 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 that set um i think the okay. term that alejandro would use or would like us to use would be adaptive multi-paddock grazing or holistic adaptive plan grazing like okay there's too many damn terms around that nobody can agree on like we, we don't have a common vocabulary and dictionary and regenerative agriculture and grazing and it kind of pisses me off sometimes <laughs> but we'll yeah. get there eventually um but no the differences that he's found you know it's it's very similar to what I've seen here, but he's getting results a lot faster on a bigger scale than, than I can afford to do here right now. Yeah. And, you know, very similar. Now he's got, he's running double the cows or quadruple the cows that the neighbors are running with two to three times the grass in a paddock that he moves out of than the neighbors have in their paddocks that their cows grazing in. Like no kidding. Yeah. Yeah. So That's he's, really interesting. I'm going to look into that. Yeah. Greening the desert. I will try to maybe put a, I'll put something in the show notes for everybody. And, yeah. You know, we can, I'll send you some messages later. Cool. Um, this is a good time to do an ad read. So okay. I'm going to push the button and we'll be right back. Perfect. Introducing C90 Ocean Minerals. C90 offers complete nutrient support for today's farm and ranch. With over 90 minerals and trace elements in nature's perfect balance, C90 remineralizes soil, increases pasture quality, and elevates the wellness of your herd. Enjoy improved drought resistance, increased pasture protein and RFV values, and the elimination of pink eye and foot and hoof rot. Originally discovered by Dr. Maynard Murray, C90 is the only product that meets his standards for sea energy agriculture, including a living ocean source and elevated amounts of macro and trace elements. Freshly created in the Sea of Cortez and OMRI certified, C90 is free from pollutants and contaminants, including microplastics. 
Visit C90.com to learn more today. That's S-E-A-90. Com. C90 is available through distributors across the U.S., including over 200 tractor supply locations. Click the link in the show notes to find the dealer nearest you. We're always looking to grow our network. Give us a call or email today and be sure to mention that Ranching Reboot sent you. Please check the show notes for all the contact information. Now back to this week's episode. And we're back. See, those ad reads aren't, aren't so bad. I, I do need to, re- I need to re-record that one. <laughs> That's not too bad. Yeah. Okay, so AI. Mm-hmm. Educate me on AI. What what's the how would you explain AI and cows to a five-year-old? Or to somebody say in Houston that works in an office that doesn't yeah. that doesn't really see cows every day. I think most people will know, even a little kid will know. Well, the well, the 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 daddy cow and the mommy cow get together. Well, it's a way for the daddy cow, mommy cow to get together when daddy cow is five hundred thousand dollars and halfway across the country. <laughs> it's you know, it's just a way to be able to better your genetics uh, from bulls that you don't have access to, and be able to also um, shorten your just your um calving interval to where you can have i mean you can have a i mean you can do it with a bolt too if you do it just right but be able to have all your calves born on the same day pretty much i mean it'll be a span of a week or two but you can ai all your cows on one day it would be the same if the bull went out there and bred all the cows on the same day also it's not going to be every cow that's going to get pregnant but 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 everything that's going to calve on that day what is it? Two two hundred and sixty eight days after service, or what is it? Two fifty two. Two eighty three. Two eighty three. So anything yeah. that calves, you know, two eighty two to two eighty four after service, you can be really sure was out of your AI bull. Mm-hmm. Everything later is off your cleanup. Yeah, yeah, and you, you'll put the cleanup bull in after, so that way you can, like right now, I've already finished all my AI calves being born, and the next go around is going to be all natural exposed the ones that didn't take to AI. Okay. So that that helps a lot, especially be able to animals that can take to AI every year. I mean, it doesn't. It shows that the animals at least fertile enough that just one unit of semen. Because when a bull breeds a cow, you know they can dump two to four hundred units in a cow. Okay. And then when you go to AI, you're only using one unit. But the only difference is is that the bull is depositing his semen before the cervix. And you're depositing that one straw on the other side of the cervix where the fertilization, everything will be. Where probably 90% of them would get past anyway. Yeah, exactly. Just giving giving them a better chance. Yep. Yep. And we try to, I I mean, I've been AIing since, since I started and it's really helped my herd. Okay. So how many different ways? Let me back up. I know there's different ways to AI, like, mm-hmm. you know, you can synchronize, you can flush. There's also like an, an option that uses less horn that you don't have to like flush them and synchronize them and, and use a bunch of hormones. Can you talk about the, those two different ways? Are you talking about like uh, IVF in vitro fertilization? Cause that's, I think that's what you're talking about. I, so, what, I, what I think I'm talking about is, is instead of bringing, bringing them in, and and putting the hormones in them to get them to sync up to where you can come back in a certain time 
and hit them all with you know with the straws yeah versus watching them and being like she's ready and then grabbing her and running her in yeah so like with the natural heat is what yeah. you're saying just yeah, let yeah, them come yeah, in yeah. a natural heat and you take the signs off that and let's say a, you know standing heat for anyone who doesn't know it's so if you get if you have a cow that's showing signs of heat first thing in the morning and another cow is riding her and she's letting the cow ride her the same as if it if it was a bull if that was a bull jumping her and she's not running away then she's ready to breed right so it would be the same except the difference is whenever you see a cow in standing heat you'll ai 12 hours later so it's like the am pm rule if a cow is standing in standing first thing in the morning you'll ai in the afternoon or vice versa if it she's standing in the evening you breed first thing in the morning and then you we do it just because it's i i mean it costs maybe less than two dollars per head just because we don't have that many cattle we'll give cisterellin whenever we ai what's, don't what's that that is a gnrh it's gonadotropin releasing hormone it's one of the hormones that you'll give if you whenever it comes to ai and all that okay what is it in english <laughs> gonadotropin releasing hormone is okay. what it's called okay so what does it do it oh, it gosh, releases gonadin uh it <laughs> It releases uh, gonadotropins. Gosh, I hope I'm not saying the wrong terms here. I, I, what I'm asking it, is like, what yeah. biological function is it modifying? It helps release the egg. Okay. It helps release the follicle. That's what it does. And But the cow's already supposed to do that if she's in a natural heat. She'll already do that. It's just kind of a assurance just in case if you're not AIing at the right time. Because the reason you do that, the reason you do that is because the the egg will be released later on from their standing heat. And the semen, when you deposit it, also has to mature inside the cow as well. And I believe that takes about five hours for the okay. for the sperm cells to mature in the cow as well. Okay. After after it's been deposited. So it's just that little time frame that you have to go on. Now I have AI'd on standing heat and giving them cisterellin and it's worked just fine i was thinking about doing a little experiment excuse me this fall trying that a little bit and see if i can impregnate them on a standing heat or if it works better you know 12 hours later for me personally heifers and i've heard a lot of people agree with this that heifers are easier to ai on a natural heat rather than putting them through protocol Okay. Which the, the protocol we use, it's a uh, 10 day fixed time protocol where on day zero, we'll insert a cedar, which is a prostaglandin implant. It looks C -I -D -R, like a T. right? Correct. It looks okay. like a T. You'll insert it and we'll leave it in there for a week. When what's we that do, do? It releases prostaglandin. Which is... which is? It's one of the hormones that the cow produces. Um, It helps... It's it's a female pregnancy fertility hormone. It it helps um, retain pregnancy also. Okay, but whenever you do that, you'll also give cisterellin, which is that that hormone I was talking talk to, to you make about it release she, the egg. Yeah, but what that'll do also, it helps clear any um, if she's cystic. Also, if she has cysts on her ovaries, that'll help clear it as well. So on day zero, you'll insert the cedar and give the cisterellin. On day seven at 5 p.m 
we will take the cedar out and give them a shot of lutalice, which is, um, uh, oh gosh, and the word just slipped my mind, but that is the, it's, it's a hormone that helps them come into heat. Okay. Um, regulates cycle. I said, I said prostaglandin, GNRH. Uh, I'll think of the name after. I'm sure uh, if you're wrong, I'm sure if you've said something wrong, somebody I will say get, I will get plenty of hate mail if you've said oh, something probably. wrong. I'm embarrassed that I get, because I, I, I say this verbatim all the time. They'll, and, they'll email me, not you. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> and so, and then you'll do that. And so with that protocol, that's a fixed time. So uh, 60 to 66 hours after you gave that shot. The, the Lutalase? Correct. Okay. After you give that shot, then you can AI in that span of time. However, if there are cows that show signs of standing heat, breed those cows based on that heat. So whatever cows don't come into heat, you'll AI in that span of time. And so when you that, okay, so during that seven days after you do the 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 cedar and the cedar pull, you've got that seven. You said seven days, mm -hmm. and then you do the lutalase. And then it's 60 to 60 to 66 hours. You said, yes, that you'll, that you'll fix time. So, AI. You, got, so you got like 12 days in there that you're watching for standing heats or just, okay. Yeah. So 60, it's like three days. So after you give the lutalize, so all non-responders you'll AI in that little time frame, and you'll give them a shot of cisterellin. And that's how you, you make up for the, um, to make it a fixed time. So like their hormones are all set up. They may have not have shown signs of standing heat, but then once you reach that 60 to 66 hours, you can go ahead and AI them and give them that shot. And it'll hopefully make them release the follicle and you can AI then. Okay. And so then that, and then from that point, uh, 10 days later, I'll put the bull in and then whatever, whatever calves are born, whatever um you know span of time after all those ai caps and after that's just from natural then, from the then you know yeah yeah so on your cleanup bulls because i'm sure somebody will ask on your cleanup bulls what's your bull to cow ratio well i have a small heart so <laughs> last and it's also like be a lot of power then so i had three bulls um like i had one bull with the majority and he had he had 25 cows with him. Uh, my other bull who was, uh, he was 13 months. So I only put him with five. I, he's my favorite bull. And I just, I didn't want to overdo him or anything being a 13 month old bull. So I just put him with five, maybe six cows. And that then was another just the bull, group that he fit with. Yeah. Yeah. And then another bull had, I believe 10, but it was just more, some of the cows can't breed those bulls because it's their sire or their maternal brothers or right and well isn't that called lion word. breeding when it works it's lion breeding when it works and it's uh inbreeding when, when it doesn't <laughs> but i mean we don't we don't have any carriers that we know of in our herd for any defects so it's not nothing really that i'm too concerned about um i don't know if you ever heard of this 
the the old fashioned way to find out if a if an animal's a carrier for a genetic defect? Uh well, first tell me what like genetic defects we're talking about, and then then tell me <laughs> then tell there's, me how well, the old timers did it. There's a few, and then I, some of them I don't even know if they should be considered defects in the way that they you know stamp them as a carrier for it. There's some. There's a developmental duplication, which if you've seen before, it'd be like the the cat the calf with two legs sticking out of its head. Yeah, that kind of deal. That's developmental duplication. There was a those don't sell to, very well at the barn at all. No, there's it's been said that it's due to a twin. Maybe the calf was with a twin, but come to find out it's actually a recessive uh, trait. It's a recessive genetic defect that the Angus carry. And then there's also ones there's um, curly calf syndrome. There's nine total. Okay, that you'll that you'll test for. And well, the old fashioned way that they did it, I don't remember exactly if it's 34 or 35, but you get 35 daughters out of a bull and have that bull breed all 30, all, all 35 of his daughters in one breeding season. Like in one go, he breeds all 35 of them. And if all the calves don't have defects, then he's defect free. Could be 36. And I I mean, I, 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 the math works. Yeah, I mean the statistics, the probability. I mean the math works, but I don't know if that would really make sense a lot of times. But if that's if that's the only tool you have, that's the tool you use. Yeah, and you know, there's there's Angus pedigrees. You can find you can find bulls in there that go back six hundred times. Wow. Yeah, six hundred. You know, I've I've had animals that'll go back to a bull 100, 200 times sometimes. Okay. Uh, I I feel like you've kind of explained AI at least enough that either I understand it or my brain's so full I can't think of any more questions about AI mm-hmm. right now. Um, so I did have uh, over the last couple weeks since we recorded the last one, and, uh-huh. well, the last few days I've had a couple questions come in. I came up with a couple of my own, um, and I, I think we did kind of answer this in the last episode. But uh, what are cattle worth in Brazil compared to here? At the like a sale barn, yeah, same. So roughly equivalent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you do the conversion, because right now it's it's nineteen U.S. cents to one Brazilian real, which is like the dollar, right? The Brazilian dollar. So it's you'll see the prices. Like it might say, um, you know, fifty dollars for a straw, but it's it's whatever the conversion is. So it. Regardless, it'll be a lot cheaper, you know, here in the U.S. But yeah, right now prices are the exact same, pretty much. And it's they are more controlled by G- JBS than what we are, at least. I, I does JBS, JBS does JBS pretty much just tell everybody what they're gonna do in Brazil as far as when you own the whole market, pretty much you just say, hey, this is what we want. When you own the whole market, it's like, well. If we don't do it, then we're not, you know, falling behind pretty much. I mean, it, I don't want to get sued, but like, is there is there literally any other player in Brazil other than JBS? That I don't know. I, I'm not too sure on that. When I went. They're just, just so big. They're that, everywhere. Yeah. Well, when I went on that trip just now, we passed five slaughter plants. 
uh we passed one that was for cattle or maybe four but one for cattle one for pork one for poultry and another one i i, I think it was another cattle one actually wow yeah so one one of the things that uh, we really didn't cover last time was like the forage chain and feeding cycle not necessarily for cow calf operations but say for like a finishing type operation okay um so like what 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 can you talk about like the forage chain that they run their cows and calves on you know the production herd versus what they run the finishing and um and production herds on or the 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 herd they're going to finish that they're going to the barn uh you mean uh like silage that's pretty i mean primarily what they they're going to feed is just silage okay like and like as a finish ration yeah yeah it's finish ration pretty much so corn silage and grain tmr just pretty much like we do here yep yep so pretty much what, what about the cows like how are the cows raised and and you know we can kind of preface it like in this country there's kind of you know two systems there's there's what I do and guys north of me do that, you know, try to pasture all year and, you know, feed hay, feed protein in the pasture. And there's guys that pasture the cows for about six months and then put them in a dry lot and feed them a ration the other six. The first. Okay. <laughs> that's, that's pretty well, cause there they don't have winter like we do up north where it's, uh, you know, they'll have green grass in the winter there, but they're not going to have however many excuse me, feed of snow that's going to, that they have to corral them. And because even in the winter there, they'll have green pastures, tall green pasture. And the cattle there are going to be framier. And the only reason for that is because of how tall their grass is. They need cattle that are a little bit taller. If you have those, like your cattle or just short, feral cattle, short stocky cattle you're going to get start getting so many problems on their underbellies because they're just their bellies are dragging the grass the entire time and ticks are really bad too down there yeah so i mean the cattle like they're not gonna heck they may weigh about the same you know thousand twelve hundred thousand to twelve hundred pound cows but their legs are you know they're a lot they're like giraffes yeah yeah that makes sense and, you know, it also makes sense why they like a lot of Indicus and the Lori blood down there is because of the of the pest resistance, the tick mm-hmm. resistance. Angus, there there was a uh, semen collection facility that we went to, and the Angus that were imported from the U.S. to there, some of them just looked like crap because just in the little lots there, the ticks were so bad that they had to clean them off every single day. I worked at a ranch there once. And he would run Simmental bulls on his Nalori cows. He had an embryo transfer facility. So he would run Simmental bulls on the Nalori cows and use those recips, those daughters as recips. The Simmental bulls would start getting ticks on their neck mm-hmm. and on their butt. And then the flies would get in and start leaving their larvae in the neck. And they would, they'd have this uh, purple uh medicine that they would just go and spray on the neck and you know just the smell of death and decay coming off and just maggots would start pouring out of their necks because of the t- initial tick in- infection turned into a fly infection then infested with maggots and the nalori would never get it but only simmental angus 
any boss tars kinds of breeds wreak havoc on them interesting so i mean in addition to having you know the delores which are you know a little more resistant to the ticks what else what do they else do they do down there for tick control because here what guys would do is you know they'd go get the saber or the cydectin and you know god forbid ivermectin and and drench their cows and that would solve the problem here you know with, with ticks and flies how do they do it down there same pretty much um they might have some other ingredients or whatever that they use that they can use that we are not allowed to here. There's a lot of most, it seems like most other countries have a lot less restrictions when it comes to the hormones or whatever kind of pest control products that we can use on our cattle, on our pastures than we do here. But I think genetics plays the biggest because the ticks are so bad i think at the end of the day it has to be genetics that saves them i think like everything well you know, I, I saw some of your videos you know there's there's dip vats and yeah. i would assume that you know they're going in those dip vats and for, they yeah they do have that as well yeah and that'd be that'd be for for pest control yeah and i guess i'm sitting here and i'm thinking of of the story Alan Savory tells in I think it's holistic management third edition about the tsetse fly areas in Africa mm -hmm. how that you know they had to have they constructed these big you know dip vats that they'd run all the cattle through they tried quarantining these areas they tried pulling the cows out they tried burning it they tried doing everything and they couldn't control the tsetse flies like the more things they tried the worse they got yeah and I can't remember what they ended up doing, but you know, it, it's no one. Alan Savior is probably some, you know, holistic adaptive plan grazing the way they the way they started using those TC fly areas, and the problem got to be not as bad. There you go. You, you know, so I think that I'm thinking about you know, okay, yeah, we've got we got a we have a we have a problem with ticks in Brazil. Okay, the solution is not more and more chemicals, more and more toxic chemicals because nature will find a way to evolve and do an end run around that toxicity. And I think, you know, a lot of us can agree that, you know, we sprayed so much toxic chemicals so much that we don't know everything that we've killed. Like we may have killed off 15 beneficial species with that chemical yeah. trying to control the one that it barely affects. Yeah. And like, uh, oh, there's, I had a conversation about uh, fungicide mm -hmm. lately. Like, have we sprayed so much fungicide in the world that we've eradicated the the good fungus that's really susceptible to those kinds of chemicals in order to kill the bad stuff that takes a high concentration of it? You know, have we eliminated so many of the good ones that that's all that's left is the bad ones that are expressing themselves and we have to, like, continue to have you know, increases exponentially in the order of toxicity in our antibiotics to fight these organisms. At the end of the day, nature wins. Whatever you do to try and fight nature, it's going to come back in some form or fashion to hurt you another way. You may, you know, you may get rid of a problem over here, but it's got to, it's going to get filled up somewhere else. And it's like you said, well, we got to get rid of this weed over here. Well, in order to do that, you have to kill 
all these other beneficial plants. And then what's that going to do? Well, it's going to hurt your soil. It's going to do this and that. And so I think going forward, if most, if not all producers at least started trying to implement more regenerative or at least ways that working with nature on your operation rather than working against it. I mean, it's going to, it'll, it'll probably, it could hurt your operation, not maybe profit per se, but it's going to end up helping our, the entire world. Rising tide lifts all boats. Yeah. Yeah. I got my words mixed up there, but (laughs) so, so since we last talked, you've obviously, it seems like you've done some thinking. What mm-hmm. uh, are you going to be taking any steps towards a more regenerative ranch in the near future? That's why I'm trying. Um, my dad, I don't, I don't think this is true. He probably heard it from one of his friends, you know, boomer face talk kind, or Facebook kind <laughs> of memes. It was something about California banned fertilizers or is going to ban fertilizers. I don't know if that's true. And I tried Googling. I didn't find anything. But just him hearing that, he was like, yeah, we have to make sure that we're, we can at least function and stuff, you know, without fertilizers and stuff. Like, finally, thank you for listening. <laughs> it took somebody else for you to catch on. But that's usually how it works. But it only took the price doubling in six months and somebody else yeah. saying it for you to listen. Thanks, Dan. Because yeah. I, I want to keep doing this. I don't want to stop. But I think in if if I end up quitting the cattle, it's because I didn't manage everything correctly. And I don't want to have an operation where I'm so dependent on input. I'm going to have inputs. It's not, you know, I'm not saying that I'm not going to have inputs. But the less inputs I have, being able to still produce the same kind of product, I mean, that you can't, you can't argue that. You can't go against that. And I have grown up in a system where it's, oh, well, you have 100 acres to run the cows. Well, you have to run as many cows as you can. You know, just give them feed, give them this, give them that. Well, then I have genetics that are surrounded around all this high input. And now I'm screwed. Now I have to get rid of cows. Well, I shouldn't have had to have done that in the beginning. If I had to maintain this the entire time, I wouldn't have a problem. And so at least on some of the pastures, I, I'm going to try and recuperate them, plant more legumes in them, and try and help the soil more so that way I don't I don't have to feed as much hay. I'm, I'm still going to be baling and making hay because in the winter, our small operation, it's... I have cattle in, in every paddock. I have cat, something in every pen. And so first off, I need to decrease the amount of cattle that I have. Because I, I have to keep some separate. I have to keep certain bulls away from. Yeah, for sure. You know, from my small seed stock operation. So first off, I need to get rid of a few. So far, I've called all the bad ones. And now the all that I have left is ones that I don't need them. But they can go to someone and do a really good job for someone else. But for what I want, I can get rid of them. And it just so happens that all the ones that I'm wanting to get rid of all had heifers on their side so now i'm like well now i gotta keep you for a little longer (laughs) but (laughs) at least now that i have daughters out of them i can i'm comfortable getting rid of them 
nothing makes me happier than a heifer calf oh yeah definitely new babies are always great but it's always so much better when it's a heifer not a bull (laughs) there's certain animals that i want a bull out of because i still have my dreams of raising an ai sire raising a bull that everyone wants to use so i'm still trying to tackle that you know but there's certain animals that i want that i'll want a female out of other ones that you know i want a bull but i try to make every cross that i make with them with the idea of well if i get a female i want the best female that i can if i get a bull it's going to be fine because i i'm i'm using the genetics of good bulls however i want to make the best female i can and so if i even if i get a bull out of that cross to me it's well that'll be a, a bull that's maternally made he he'll at least have the genetics to produce good maternal quality so so far that's done pretty well for me at least keeping that in mind that makes sense and you know like like the guys at noble they added the sixth principle of soil health know your context and know your context you know what what works for me won't necessarily work 100 for you mm-hmm. and you know the conversation we've been having about you know what is regenerative agriculture well it's not a destination it's a journey yeah and yeah. we're all starting at a different place and no matter where you are on your journey of regenerative agriculture and soil health you're there you've at least started asking questions you you listeners are you know at least starting by listening to this podcast for whatever that's worth and it's kind of leads into a discussion that I want to have about, you know, some of the dissension and division that we're, that we're experiencing in agriculture right now, you know, and I, I don't like to put things in terms of winners and losers or contest because we can all win. Mm-hmm. We can also all freaking lose big, Yeah, but we've got to work together and you know, there's a lot of dissension, and I think the big difference I find between a con- somebody that's stuck in a conventional mindset and and stuck in that program versus somebody that's on a regenerative side is the guys that are on the regenerative side, what sets them apart is not where you are in the journey. It's the commitment to be a lifelong learner and the understanding that the things that we have learned and have the practices that we have been applying for the last, I don't know, 60 plus years are quite possibly flawed and we oh, can yeah. do better. That's, and that's the biggest point is we can do better. There's a lot of people that get really upset. like, Oh, those region guys and it, it'll never work and stuff. It's, it's not that it won't work. It's that every, I think, I think everybody should implement some type of, regenerative practice as something that helps the soil without artificial by not by artificial means right i think every operation at least has that duty to the land to the earth to do that and i think ridicule of those kinds of practices some i think ridicule sometimes is the best means of being able to finally get it in people's mind of why you're the way you're doing something is kind of silly. There's always a better way. If, if it's not just a better way, it's also a more healthy way for, for your land, for your soil, 
for your animals. And being able to push the buttons on those kinds of people that are completely against it, I think over time is going to start opening some eyes some more. There's probably some means that maybe a little too harsh sometimes on <laughs> on how uh so you know some of them conduct themselves even me i i've caught myself doing it and at the end of the day it, i think what's the most important is the ag industry and trying to make sure that it is successful for everyone and not just successful for everyone but at least not an abusive means on on the land and on the animals because to an extent you know overgrazing the conventional way it is it, it's abusive to the land it's abusive also to the animals you know the the feedlots i just i don't really like looking at feedlots i don't like seeing the animals you know cooped up like that pinned together you know personally i just i, I don't think that that's how it's it's awful hard be. for me to drive down US 54 through the panhandles down into yeah. down in New Mexico or even highway 400 through western Kansas you know out around Garden City Dodge City it's just it's feedlot after feedlot after feedlot then mm -hmm. the big Tyson plant and then feedlot 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 you go down 54 and it's like they just might as well rename that the JBS highway cuz it's JBS yeah. and five rivers for like 200 miles down there yeah, and I, I just, I don't like looking at it. I think there needs to be a lot more, because it's not necessarily efficient for us. It's it's what's efficient for them. Right. And you know, so. Well, we were talking about carcasses earlier. Yeah. Okay? Small cows make the cattlemen money. Yeah, that's efficient for us, but it's not efficient for them. That's not what makes them. Well, well the big carcasses make them money. Yeah. yeah. But then you get them too big and you get discounted. Yeah. It has to be just right. It has to be just right for our for our conveyor belts and everything. And for conveyor our conveyors, the height the chain is off the mm -hmm. ground for the for the one cut we've trained all three thousand guys to make, yep. you know, six thousand times a day. Like that's there's a point where efficiencies of scale loses loses sight and loses touch with the ecological and the and the human cost mm -hmm. i mean for as much as for as much crap as we can talk about feedlots like i yeah they're bad they're gross they're ugly um working conditions in a packing plant living conditions yeah come on like do you want to go live there i wouldn't no well and that's why the people that are there are there because they will do that job and live there for that pay and that opportunity. Yep. You know, in that there, there's just there's so much into it, and and how do you get out of it as a as a as a system <sighs> as a whole? It, you know, it's kind of to me, it's not going anywhere. I don't think it's it's something that's just no feedlots are closing tomorrow. No, like, they're no matter how much Cory Booker and Elizabeth Warren wish, wish they mm -hmm. could, they they are not going to ban feedlots. Feedlots are not going to empty out in the next two years by any sort of governmental pressure. Yeah, 
could be completely wrong, but, but I'm I just saying it. that yeah. I'm just saying that the meat lobby is way too powerful to let that happen. Yeah. And so at this point, it's those of us that would just want to take it back into our own hands, put it back into the people, into the producers, into into what the way it's supposed to be and not just a, a factory made factory kind of product. Yeah. And, you know, I totally appreciate Mike Calicrate. I, I really enjoy that guy. I really enjoy talking to him, enjoy his mind. And it, I've talked to him enough. Mm-hmm. We can't, we're not going to beat Tyson Cargill, JBS and Mark Frick. No, we are not going to beat them. We can go to the Supreme court with an airtight case and we're not going to win like period. The only way that we're going to do anything different in our industry is to not play their game anymore. Yep. And that means inventing a different game. I mean, that means, that means making, that means a lot of guys have to make a change. You know, yeah. me, you, probably most of the people listening to this, we got to make some changes in our business to be more profitable. I mean, I don't know about you. I don't know what the weather service is saying for you for next year. Client Prediction Center, they're saying La Nina is going to go three. They're saying triple dip La Nina, which means more of the same weather pattern we've had for the last two years. Because I, I mean, I've heard... I've heard that it, it's supposed to lift by February. February. Well, that's what I heard at least. So I don't know. I'm just, I'm, I'm still trying to work towards hoping that the, that it's going to lift by February. That's just kind of how I'm pushing planting and stuff right now. So hopefully next year I'll be able to do this kind of crop, this kind of crop. And, but man, if, if it's another year like that, though, it's, it's going to be ugly. It's not going to be, it's not going to be pretty. Yeah. I, you know, I, okay. That, that one uh, TikTok you sent me the other day, I, I can't get that out of my head. I've been thinking about that like for the last two days. Which one was it? The one that, uh, the one that's down in Southern Oklahoma, Southeast Oklahoma, that said that there were the 100, 150 bales short of hay. I, now, and we could be talking about an 800 pound four by four or a 1600 pound five by five. Yeah. Okay. I don't think it's square bales. No. I, <laughs> so because a 1600 pound round five by five, that's what grocks in my brain. And I do that math real quick. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, it works out to like that was uh, 6,000 cow days worth of food that they're short. Yeah. 6,000 cow and you got to get to the 1st of May. Like that's only like 50, 60 cows that they're that they got to feed. Like it, it wasn't that many that they're short. It, like it, but it didn't seem like a large number to me of what they were going to be of how many head that they needed to feed all winter. Does that make sense? Yeah, and that that's what, and I had asked, you know, how many head are y'all running? Because 150 bales is that's not much. That's I mean, not it's, much. It's either it's either all the hay in the world to a guy that has five in the backyard, or yeah. it's nothing to a guy that's got a thousand on pasture. And you know, did how did they prepare for this point? Because there was a lot of hay for sale last year. There's been hay for sale everywhere. There was 
hay for sale in Oklahoma. I could have trucked down from uh, like two and a half, three hours away. And it would have cost a pretty penny, but it all the hay was there. So right now, if I, you know, if, if we haven't prepared for the worst or we have a, an operation set up for failure like this, it's, it's just going to keep getting worse. I, 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 there's almost nothing that I can say on that other yeah. than you're overstocked. Take some fucking cows to town. Yeah. And, you know, this particular one, it doesn't really seem like it's um, I think it's like a first generation operation. And they're, you know, they just want to have a ranch. They want to have cows. They want to have the chickens. And I want everyone to have that. But you have to realize that it's not just I want cows. It's not it's charity. You know, it's yeah. And there's no reason for any kind of GoFundMe, I think, to be set up for anyone that's that hasn't prepared themselves. And that's what I see people doing. That's yeah, what's no. really going to piss me off if I see this fall and winter is I see big operations, big cow calf operations start posting GoFundMe's to get to get people to send them money so they can go buy overpriced hay because they failed to plan. What'll piss yeah. me off even more than that is if the government steps in and starts giving those people subsidies and handouts for their poor yeah. fucking planning yeah. and lack of preparation. And those will be the people that'll laugh at somebody like me that grazes year round and yeah. talk shit on my cattle. Like, go ahead, take that government handout to stay in business and then tell me how bad of an operator I am. If if I have to take cows to sell barn still because I wasn't prepared enough, I mean, that's that's all me. But I'm not going to I'm not going to be like, hey, can can y'all help me out, please? Can y'all, you know, donate to my GoFundMe? I don't want to get rid of my cows. Or dear, or dear government, help me help you know, save my cows. Help me find some hay for my cows so they don't starve to death. Leave the GoFundMe's for you know the kids that got sick all of a sudden, stuff like that that you can't help. But stuff that you can't help that you should have prepared for, you know. And, and from that TikTok, you can see the pastures. I mean, you know, it's a drought, and down here, it's it's tough to really keep after your pastures. But it was dirt. Exactly. They, it was just dirt, and. I mean, I'm super dry, but just halving off part of the pasture, letting that grow up, let the cows go hit that, have hay on the other side, and the one where they hit it enough, bring them back over, fence it back off, and just do something at <laughs> least. Just do one little thing like that. That's all, at least. Yeah, just split it in half. Just split yeah. it in half and rest half of it. Yeah. Like, you don't do. have to move them every damn day. Mm -hmm. You don't have to move them every week. Yep. Just split it up and let part of it rest for a little bit. And, and you're you're right. Like in the background, I've only I only watched it like the whole way through one time. Yeah, me too. Because I mean, it's just it's just hard <laughs> to listen to. Like if you if if people knew where to look, if people actually would look, these drought indications have been there for two years. Yeah, they were there. I mean. Nine months ago in the spring, the the Climate Prediction Center, the National Drought Mitigation Center, even National Weather Service, they're all saying it's probably going to be dry in the Great Plains this year. Yeah. And, and you have, go ahead. And nobody listened. Nope. Everybody has faith. Oh, it'll rain. Oh, it'll rain. You know, God will provide. No, that's not how, that's not how it works. Here. No, you, you don't. 
it's like it, it's i know it's bad but can you please no like this is the way it was going to be to begin with everybody knew been saying it and i wish i had prepared a lot more than what i did still i'm fine but right now i'm just i i, I just need to prepare for each time that we do have rain and at least just prepare for a year in advance and i think that's a problem a lot of producers don't do is look in advance of well if we're in a drought this part next year i need to make sure i'm doing this right now to save me then and that was something i didn't do before i wish i had bought hey 70 80 dollars a bell when it was when it was available like that and i was like nah, we'll we'll be fine no and then when it got to 100 i was like yeah i need i need to do it now <laughs> maybe, maybe i should have bought that a couple weeks ago you know because i mean even our pastures because our hay pastures we have one well we try to make horse quality hay for for our horses right be, for us in the long run it's we found it to be I, I won't say cheaper but it is more efficient for us to be able to bale all of our hay whenever we want instead of depending on someone else to do it as well as um instead of importing alfalfa right because we you know we'll feed like 30 because your parents are your parents are still doing the reigning horse thing yeah yeah so they probably want some really really good feed well and what what's good about the coastal that we bale it's horse quality we we keep it up in the barn and all we do instead of feeling feeding alfalfa we just take a bale down open it up uh with the the flat side on the ground and just pull it off put it on a little trailer feed all the horses and i've saved my mom so much money compared to paying for all the alfalfa that we would need to spend and i have all perfectly good hay and the horses look great on it and so and and then from that whatever else i have is for the cows so that's the benefit on that and at least you know one one thing i notice also is that people complain so much about the prices on hay oh it's 120 dollars a bale 150 dollars a bale it's like, well, <laughs> you know whenever whenever cattle prices were good you know, people weren't complaining about how, you know, how much a bull was and everything. Well, another thing that people, I think, forget to realize that if you have to feed hay, the more the better quality hay you have, the less you have to supplement. If you have $120 hay and it's really good quality hay, you don't have to have any supplement there. All that supplement's right there in the hay. It's in the grass that your cows are eating. So you're you're saving money. But then if you go cheaper, get $80 hay that they don't want to eat that much well then you have to supplement them with feed or cake or tubs and then this more more cost right there speaking of tubs i think i'm about ready to go get a couple pallets just i don't want to spend the money like i don't even really it's... want to spend the money buying alfalfa but like i think i'm going to be one one truckload of alfalfa and probably three maybe four pallets of tubs should get me all winter and that's feeding from probably november 15 to around april 15 on the on the alfalfa november to april you said is that what yeah. you said I, yeah okay. yeah and well you know and I'm, I'm the low input weirdo in the area so like yeah i'm not saying like my good manager neighbors are not hauling hay like their hay yards are like filling up yeah. um but they are caking um gotcha the guys that aren't quite as good of managers um, that have 16, 1800 pound cows, 
Yeah. Yeah. They've been feeding for a while and they're, you know, they're pushing three, four pounds ahead a day of a 30 to 40% cake. Yeah. Which I don't know how anybody can afford to feed more than two pounds a day of cake. There's a, there's a gentleman near me just down the road and he, you know, he has what could be a perfect operation. He has all the implements he needs. He has two great big feed bins and he feeds the grain to his cows and his cows just, they're just all crossbred and they're all skinny and they still have to get fed grain. And I just, I can't imagine what, where the profit is if they're just selling to the sale barn. And it's not just black calves or, you know, calves that are colored all over them. They have all different kinds of, there's no consistency. So, you know, how much money, you know, are they spending right now on all this feed for the cow? Some of my cows I'm feeding right now just to give them that extra, the extra energy requirements they need to go on the corn stalks or something. But then once they have the good hay, they're not getting anything. Right. That hay is going to provide everything they need and, or it's supposed to. And if, if they can't even handle themselves on good hay, you know, they got to go. They got to go find another job. Yep. And right now, I think with, with everything that's going on, you know, with the weather and inputs and everything, the kind of cattle that are really going to take a hit are going to be these EPD oriented Angus, at least they're really going to be taking a hit because there's no way that all these producers. The high input genetics. Yeah. I, I mean, whether, whether we're talking about high inputs as far as, you know, high inputs as feed, high inputs with, you know, hormones, ionophores. Um, yeah. The, a lot of times those kind of guy, those kinds of people already have, they, they can pay for that feed and not hurt, you know? So that's the problem when you get those kind of people that just have enough money to do whatever they want with it. Well, they're just going to continue a problem that is actually harmful in the long run, you know, continuing these genetics that just don't, aren't going to perform out in the pasture like they should. And, uh, I, I said this a while back and I, some people had gotten mad at me. I don't, I didn't really think it was that big of a deal, but with the amount of cows that we've had go to the sale barn, was, to me, I called it kind of like a great culling. We had so many go, well, the majority of those cows, what are they going to be? They're going to be probably the cows that are bad genetics. They're going to be all the cows that were infertile, bad calving intervals, couldn't keep up. They're the ones that got cleaned out. Those are the genetics that got cleaned out and all the good genetics that were able to stay, that were fertile and people didn't want to get rid of, they stayed. So, you know, hopefully that's the silver lining I can see at least in these kinds of situations for the cattle market as a whole. That makes sense. I I see it. You know, we're talking about kind of a cow sell-off, which I think, I think there is a cow sell-off kind of going on. So we've got, we've got our eight and 10 year old cows coming off the last good cycle. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of those cows that people paid, way too much money for in 2014 off the last high cycle are starting to come out of production you know that's that's the b b herd and the c herds that are that are going to town that might already be in town yeah and i'll just be blunt in order to get through the next few years of agriculture there's a lot of high input cows that are going to die yeah whether they die in a pasture because producer can't afford all the inputs 
or they die at the barn or they, they die at the plant. Yep. It's going to be a lot of high input, high energy needing cattle that aren't going to make it another five years. And there's a gentleman down here in Texas. I, I think you kind of do that. We've, we've talked about it before, but uh, they buy, they buy really cheap cows at the sale barn, try and feed them up, get them fat and then resell them to other people. I, I don't know if you remember. And, I, you yeah, know, I think I know who you're talking about. The guy that, the guy that's yeah, really yeah. defending his antibiotic use. Yeah. Yeah. I know and that guy. so to me that, that how does that not cause a problem for customers? Because if you don't know why that cow is in, you know, he'll buy open cows and get them pregnant and feed them. They're all at the barn for a really good reason. Exactly. And so now you want to continue those genetics. As I was sitting there thinking, well, I took some cows to the cell barn that needed to get slaughtered. What if a guy like this went and bought them, did the same thing that he was doing, feed them up and try and sell them. And now somebody's over there. You know, oh, I, I get the business model. So you take one of your cows to yeah. the barn. And they sell her for a hundred bucks to a guy like that. He thinks he got a great deal, not knowing why you took her to the barn. He's going to take her home right off the truck, put a needle of Drax in her LA 200 in her to make sure mm -hmm. that, you know, she stays healthy and doesn't get the rest of his cows sick that are standing in a dirt lot, getting fed hay and a ration. Okay. You can feed condition and fertility on anything. Yeah, Exactly. And then he can turn around and feed those things for 30 days, make them look good. And as long as they've been standing in the pen with the bull, he can turn around and sell them as exposed and make a couple hundred dollars ahead on them, hold them for 30 days. Yep. Is that a viable business model? 100%. Is he doing anybody in the industry any favors? Fuck no. No. That, and that's exactly it. You know, he's just getting getting the, uh, the rejects and uh, sugarcoating them with fat and sell them to continue. some other sucker yep I, yeah exactly i don't that. think guys like you and me are buying cows from that guy no but somebody is you know somebody's like well i want to try and get into cows and stuff it's like oh well here's this guy he seems like he knows a lot and stuff and he's got these good cows they're not quite as much as i was wanting to you know thinking about spending so perfect that'll work for me well then he's going to go and he's going to get my cow that had horrible feet didn't get pregnant, couldn't keep weight, and then and now the problem's just his. Well, that's no, you know, we can't. I hate that business model. <laughs> but it it's it's viable, and you know, I I don't know what we can what what we as fellow producers can do to discourage that practice, or if there's education that we can try to give people as to as to maybe why that's not so great. Yeah. But at the end of the day, Kevin, there's 340 million people in this country. Something like 1.6% of us are engaged in agriculture. So what is that? 2 million. Yeah. Okay. That's the farmers. That's migrant laborers. That's landowners. That's tenant farmers. That's ranchers. That's custom grazers. That's feedlot operators backgrounders that's everybody yeah so when you really drill down to it how many people are in the cattle business a million uh, even less than the six hundred thousand okay so let's just say there's less than a million of us that own cattle yeah then we start getting down to like really breaking down how many guys are in seed stock how many guys are in commercial 
cow calf. Like I, I don't even want to really count backgrounders and feedlots. Yeah. Because once that calf is a year old, if it goes to the if it goes to the commodity system, to me that's completely separate. Like, oh, like it's not it, at, at that point you're not a you're not a part of it anymore. It's right. What once you take that animal out of the pasture and it gets confined for the rest of its life, like from my pasture, like for example, my pasture to the barn, to a backgrounder, yeah. to a feedlot, to the packing plant. Like when it sees its last day in pasture, that's when I that's when it's not even not even on my radar anymore. Like you know, uh, you don't we shouldn't it's like we shouldn't consider them on the same rank as everybody else in the ag like you can you can ride that horse out there and check all those cows and feed them and keep doing that and farm the corn and everything but you're 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 not uh you ain't that ain't a, ranching that ain't ranching no like if you're riding through dusty ass pens all day and you don't see a blade of grass that ain't ranching yeah to me yep. anyway like write in if i'm wrong and explain to me how i'm wrong <laughs> exactly you know, it's. I hate that th that we have such a system that's built like that, but at least that gives opportunity for for the rest who don't want to live in that kind of system to at least grow and and have their say more now. Now that because it's not just I think the biggest problem is that people in the ag industry don't want to live by a notion the customer's always right you know the customer isn't always right but when a lot of the customers are telling you hey like we don't we don't know exactly what y'all are putting in our food we don't really like the way that you're handling our the food and the american meat institute says oh that's fine the science says it's safe withdrawal periods it's like hey we withdrawal periods it's like okay that's a withdrawal to a certain level and you, you don't know exactly what all's because i i saw something yesterday about you know how because i still don't know exactly how they test I'm, i want to look into it more but testing the carcasses for antibiotics you know testing every single carcass with as many thousands of carcasses that are being tested every single day every single week it's like six hundred and fifty thousand a week you know, are you are you telling me every single six hundred fifty one of those six hundred fifty thousand got got uh you know tested every single one every single one got inspected perfectly, or even on top of that, whatever cattle that we're importing from other countries, guarantee it's worse. Oh God, we haven't even talked you know, about Brazilian imports yet. <laughs> you know, well, Brazilian, Mexican, Canadian, yeah, um, I, all it, of them. So a couple years ago. I was at, uh, we were at, uh, shit, executive link meeting for ranching for profit. Mm -hmm. And let's see, I got to leave out some names here so I don't get sued. Yeah. <laughs> there was a gentleman that was in his 60s that had been a feedlot vet for a long time for a major feedlot system. And, you know, when he sits in front of a room of 200 of us and says, yeah, pretty much everything is either classified as high risk or low risk. The high risk cattle get Jackson and the low risk cattle get LA 200 off the truck. So when, raise they, my, when they go into when they show up at the yard. High risk cattle get Jackson right off the truck and low risk cattle got LA through LA 200. 
So I held up my hand and I said, sir, are you saying every animal that gets off the truck pretty much gets antibiotic? And he says, no, I'm saying we classify things based on risk. Low risk animals get this and high risk animals get that. And I said, is there such a thing as a no risk animal? And he moved on to the next question. Of course. <laughs> and you know, it, it's very, very similar from what we hear, you know, on social media. You know, every once in a while, one of those guys that works at a feedlot or a big process or, you know, big feedlot or big background will slip up and say, yeah, we do, we do this with antibiotics and this is why. Okay. So now you're trying to justify it. So you do do it. You're just trying to like keep it on the download. Like, oh, look, it's not as bad as, as, as it sounds. Well, they say like, oh, look, we don't, we don't just mass feed antibiotics indiscriminately. What do you call putting it in the feed? Like, what do you call an animal that walks off the truck and you have 10 seconds to look at it and you're sticking a needle in its neck? Yeah. Well, exactly. we have to do that because, because efficiency, because it's more profit. It's more efficient that way. Mm-hmm. You try riding through 25,000 head of cattle a day and spend 30 minutes a pen to pull calves. We don't have that kind of time. Well, that indicates that that is a fundamental flaw in your production system. Yeah, there's a problem there. You know, the fundamental flaw is we're putting cattle in an unnatural environment with a lot of in a, an extremely pathogenic friendly environment. Like, mm, yeah, we build these feedlots to be perfect environments for pathogens to live and breed. Yeah. And then you have to give. The, yeah, that's why you have to give antibiotics. You have to give you have to deworm them, have to do everything, vaccines, everything in order to just prevent the the, the you know, like you said, the environment that they created. Uh, lung cysts and lung problems in feedlot cattle. Like, yeah. hey, if they weren't standing in the middle of 75,000 other cattle in 15 acres in a dusty lot for three months, their lungs probably wouldn't be fucked up. Yeah. And, or, you know, having three, 4,000 head just dropping dead in a, in a couple days because, uh, because how fat they are, how, you know, because they can't, they don't have shade. They don't even have a way to, to escape the heat. You know, I almost forgot about that. Yeah. I, I kind of had forgotten about that. And, I think, yeah, everybody. You know, at the time when that happened, I really tried to stay quiet because mm-hmm. whatever the number is, whether it was a thousand or 10,000, it's and, horrible. It's, it's, it's horrible that those animals had to go through that. And what makes it even worse is people put them there. People put them in that condition. People put them in that unhealthy condition and that unhealthy situation where a little bit of heat overnight was too much for them. Now, I'll also say this. I've heard that maybe maybe one of those places that had a bunch of cattle parish had some water issues for a few hours. Yeah. And I, I can buy... You know, it, when cattle don't have enough water when it's that hot, like they almost go into a scarcity mindset and almost panic. Yeah. Like, and when water does come back, instead of drinking the twenty gallons they, they normally would, they're going to they drink just, thirty. Yeah, you know, because they're they're worried that it might not be there again when they come back. I get it; it makes sense. Whether there was or wasn't a water problem, like people still put them in that situation. People, before, go ahead. Sorry. And before I, I, I defended it, you know, saying like, look, it's, that's a normal, uh, that's a, that's a 
thing with weather. It happens. And what are you going to expect whenever you have super fat cattle and you have weather changes like that and they're overfed, there's no shade kind of deal. And uh, I was talking to another guy and he was saying, you know, there's, there's also possibilities. Somebody screwed up in their rations, could have yep. messed up in their food and done something like that. It, and it, that's entirely possible yeah. that there could have been a truck that got mixed with too hot of a ration for the temperature yeah. and they halt and they, mistakenly fed it to a couple pins that could have happened good luck at getting anybody to ever admit that and it, it it also reminded me of back during during covid when you know we were having so many issues with uh like pork and poultry i don't know if you remember there was um i'm pretty sure it was pork there was a a, a plant i think up in iowa that they did the oh, oh they had to euthanize them? several entire barns of hogs up and in they Iowa. did it through a like asphyxiation asphyxiation through heat for, through the humidity I, if i remember right i thought and they pumped in like co2 into the barn like it, just, it was some it was something like that to where they they pretty much suffocated not a great way to go and but to think like man that's i i don't i don't like that i i i'm in i'm in the ag industry I'm a part of this and I, how can anybody sit there and just sweep that under the rug? Like that's, that's bad. And yeah. I, you know, there, there's no reason we should be having some kind of system that allows. I, I, I don't, I don't blame people for becoming vegan, for going and seeing something like that, because that's, that's poor production. I, that's awful. Our friend Chip McGregor hit the nail 100% on the head when he said that, that feedlots, chicken barns and hog houses are why the vegans are going to win yeah <laughs> it's because of that and the, the that puts all their focus on those things and they think well because this is what we see that must mean it's everything and well yep. it's not yeah and they lump you guys know, like us in with that like help us try to get away from that you can be on our side you don't have to eat meat you don't have to use animal products, but at least support the ones that are trying to do a good job taking care of their animals, taking care of the land, and trying to ensure that when we do uh, slaughter them and and utilize them, that it's done humanely, it's done efficiently, and it's done in... But they don't I mean, a it, lot of time. No matter where you are in agriculture with livestock... And I think we would all agree on a couple of things. Okay. We need to support other people in our industry. Yeah. Okay. That's great. We, I can't support somebody that's using indefensible practices. Like if, if you can't mm -hmm. defend your practices against public scrutiny, I'm not going to help defend you. Yeah. And COVID, COVID, COVID shined a light in a lot of dark corners, social media, I, you know, when smartphones came out and there was a camera and they put a, the first camera on a phone mm -hmm. and it could do video, like almost immediately I had the thought like, holy shit, there's going to be so much awesome stuff on YouTube now. Like there's going to be plane crashes. There's going to be car wrecks. There's going to oh, be yeah. all this stuff because everybody's got a camera with them all the time. And it didn't happen and it didn't happen and it didn't happen. And then like, now here we are 15, 20 years later. Now that's the reality. Yeah. That, you know, there is a lot more transparency that there 
is a lot more flow of information and colleges, universities are no longer the universal seats of learning that they once were. I mean, we have these supercomputers we carry around in our pocket. You're probably listening to this, this podcast on one of them right now. It is literally a supercomputer that's more powerful than everything, every computer on earth 40 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Like it's so, it's so wild to me that we get to watch the collapse of civilization <laughs> on a worldwide scale in 4k <laughs> in 4k streaming and i can watch that in the bathtub i can watch it when i'm out in the cow pasture i don't have to sit on the couch in front of a tv the interconnectivity that social media and, and smartphones and the internet has brought us it's brought so many of us closer together it's created so many different new communities but at the same time it's also allowing us to shine a light in those dark corners of our industries that we don't want anybody to see. Yeah. Or and, not, not that we don't want anybody to see, but the people that, that and, made those dark corners don't want you to see. And uh, force the uncomfortable conversations a lot. I think that's, that's a really important part of it too. The, uh, you know, the ag industry is going to have to, it's going to, I think it's going to be making a lot of big changes, especially in the next 10 years. I think something's, it's, it's either going to look really ugly for a lot or, you know, really good for some. <laughs> it's tough to even say, really. Well, it's I, not going to be like the last 20, 30 years. It's, it's going to be different. It's definitely going to be different. And my crystal ball got really cloudy about mid-March of 2020. And it hasn't really cleared up. Yeah. <laughs> once, you know, once that happened, I mean, it was... I got really lucky right when it hit in April. I had a like a like a meet and greet um, open house bull sale. I had all my bulls there available to sell. And I was like, man, I'm not going to be able to sell any of these bulls. And luckily, I, I sold all but two that day. That was perfect. I had enough people come in. I was like, if that didn't happen, I'd be screwed for the rest of the year. And hopefully ever since then it's kind of got it's gotten better but the thing i keep thinking is you know the price of diesel feed fertilizer pesticides all that stuff is not going to just become cheap again and it's not just going to have a oh okay you can use whatever you want it's we we, we really got to start hunkering down on how to take care of ourselves without everyone else at least you know inputs and See and see how far we make it, pretty much. And I hope we can make it to the end, or at least some of us, enough of us that we can, you know, keep some people fed. Yeah, exactly. That's that's the goal. You know, hopefully, if the cattle don't, if I don't last in the cattle business with my cattle, I'll at least be able to do something in it. I'll be able to continue something going forward. So, okay, I know we've been we've been at it for just a little over two hours. You you good? You need a break? You want to keep going? I'm I'm fine. Whatever. Okay. So this morning Lincoln was texting me. Um, I think he'd just listened to our last episode together. He was asking um about SAV genetics or SAV bloodlines. Yeah. If you had any plans to add in any. Um, where to go? I see Kevin likes those SAV bulls, and I've had a hard time with SAV. Having bulls with a thousand pound 
205 day waits is not real world sustainable. That is, I mean, I understand that. The thing is, though, is that when I use those genetics in my herd, I get, I mean, I get the heavier weaning weights. I get the better maternal quality. And that's just me. I don't care if anybody else doesn't use them. That's just what I use. That's how uh, my mentors in Brazil and here, that's the kind of cattle they use. It's the kind of cattle I like. And I'm just trying to make my own herd utilizing some of those genetics. It's not all of them, but I don't even pay attention to those weaning weights and stuff. I, if you have the money to to be able to feed them out that heavy, do do what you want. But luckily, the genetics that I've used, they benefit me. So that's I don't get thousand pound weaning weights. I'm probably never going to, but they always end up being the heaviest weaned of the group compared to other bulls that are like, well, look at my top one percent EPD for weaning weight. Well, usually I don't get that actual performance out of that animal compared to the other ones. Because even because even then, here's another thing, though, when you look at those thousand pound weaning weights, another thing to remember is how they ratio in their contemporary groups. So if you have a contemporary group of, let's say, 50 bulls, because they're all born in the same time span, and all 50 of those bulls were in the same program and they were fed the exact same. And you take the average weaning weight of all 50 of those bulls and let's say it's 900 pounds. Well, you'll set that 900 pounds to 100 as uh, as the median, as the average. We'll just say 100. So any animal that weans heavier than 900 is going to end up having a ratio number higher than a higher than 100 and anything less than 900 pounds would be less than 100 so let's say i have a bull that weaned uh a thousand pounds in that contemporary group well he's going to ratio over 100 he he might ratio 120 let's say the association will say he ratioed 120 in that contemporary group well that's that's telling me that that bull performed better in the same group than another bull even though it was a 900 pound weaning weight 900 pound weaning weight anywhere else would be like that's amazing but in that program it didn't perform quite as well as the other bulls 900 pound weaning weight would kill my cows exactly exactly (laughs) but you know if you took that same contemporary group let's say those same 50 bulls and put them in your program well that bull that weaned a thousand pounds and he had that high ratio in your program, he might also have that high ratio, but comparable to the kinds of weaning weights you would take out. Like, so so down the road on, like on a gardener cow, he would wean, you know, a 900 pound calf, but you bring that bull and you put him on my little cows and he's going to wean something like, something like a 650, 700, where, you know, another bull would be weaning like a five, five to 650. And, you know, there's so many genetics out there that can produce just as heavy a weaning weights and stuff is at the end of the day for the last 20 what 30 years weaning weights they say weaning weights have increased which i mean they have but at the same time if you look at the bulls from back then compared to now they are they're all still in the 600 to 700 pound range nothing's really changed in the grand scheme of it all um i think they've been able to reach that quicker but at the same time weaning 
the weaning age is still the same. It's not like that's changed. Right. Still going to be, you know, 205 day weight or however they want it. And so that doesn't really bother me too much. I'm not really trying to worry about the weaning weights too much because for me and my operators, that means I'm pushing too hard. If I get way too big a weaning weights, there's some animals that just excel beyond the others and they're going to be way heavier than some of the rest. And those are the ones I'm going to try and utilize the genetics on as long as I didn't have to feed them so hard to <laughs> get to them. I creep feed a little bit, you know, I just, I'll give them maybe half a bucket or so, depending on how many are in the pen, but I just give them enough that they can go in there, eat several bites just to also help out the cow with my small operation. That's what we've been doing, but we'll see how that goes. Okay. Kind of last question. Then I'll let you go and get on with the rest of your day. No problem. And it's not really a question. It's kind of a statement. Um, so Lincoln also was talking about um, going back to some of the old Angus bloodlines and seeing good results with them as far as grass efficiency. Bloodlines like emulation, Rito, Nutrend, and Traveler. Which, I mean, those all could have been Greek and I wouldn't know anything. Does any of those names mean anything to you? Yeah, so, well, the Rito genetics, that when I use the Shoff genetics, I really like Resource and Renown, who are full brothers. And they're out of a bull called... Uh, Rito 3407 7075 of I think I've heard you talk about resource before yeah I think yeah and so that's those genetics okay and combined with traveler genetics on the bottom so for me those genetics do really good I love those traveler genetics on the bottom you mean on on the maternal side yeah so like the maternal grandsire which would be the the dad of the mom he's a he's a an SAV bull but he's traveler lineage Okay. So, like, uh, I'll have a. I don't, I'm really bad on the Angus genetics compared to the Brahmas, but you'll have one bull traveler. Well, then he has a son that's like traveler the second, and then traveler, traveler, tra- it, a lineage of bulls <laughs> that are named traveler. And same way with the cows, it's a lineage of cows with the same name as a family. Yeah. Coming up with names for my cows but is always. I, I think he's right, though. Uh, the EXT and um, all those bloodlines. You can't really go wrong back in the time when that's where they were focused was, you know, maternal quality and maternal production, especially. I don't think I've asked you about Federal Cattle Company. What do you think of their bulls? I don't. I, I've looked at some of the catalogs and I just I don't need this. But I've, I've heard he's a master marketer. I've heard there's people that have done really good with their cattle. I, I don't know. <laughs> anything about it but it's not it's not what i use but i'll just say the same thing i always say when somebody asks me about kit pharaoh i believe he could sell freezers in fairbanks alaska in <laughs> february okay mm-hmm. and and ice makers in fairbanks in february okay i also think that he's got some bulls that live up to what he says they'll do really I because I, I don't see them much. I don't see much advertising and that kind of stuff. So that's why I always kind of stays under the radar for me. Okay, but well, I think um, I think that's about all I got today, buddy. Appreciate it. Been long enough. It's I been really, good. Did, really yeah. enjoyed it. Both episodes. This is, you know, love doing this. So, all right. Well, that's it, gang. Go have a great week. Get out there and make it happen. You too. Take it easy. Yeah. See ya.
This episode has been sponsored by C90 Ocean Minerals. Visit C90.com to find a distributor near you or call to request a quote today. That's S-E-A-90.com. And don't forget to mention that Ranching Reboot sent you. Have a great week, y'all.